Spring has arrived. I know it's hard to believe after this winter, but I think we can all safely say that spring is finally here. Warm weather, yes, and hot sunshine. Soon we'll be complaining about heat. Can you believe that? Then we'll be turning on that air conditioner. Does yours work? Does it need a tune-up? Don't wait until you're sweating bullets in the heat to make sure your system is running smoothly. From AC tune-ups to repairs, Aquarius Home Services, they're here to help. If you need a new AC unit right now, Aquarius is offering a new AC for as low as $55 per month. Plus, they treat your home like it's their own, from wearing shoe covers to cleaning up everything when they're done. Aquarius believes in earning the right to be recommended, and I recommend them. They're just a click away at AquariusHomeServices.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Do North Outdoors podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Natalie Dillon, here with Travis Frank, and a special guest that we are going to introduce momentarily. It's an exciting topic, spring foraging, if you can believe it. It's just around the corner. We're going to be diving into that today. But first, I feel like we've got some things we need to clear up. Well, Travis, did, you, did you win the glacier race, Natalie? I did not win the glacier race. <laughs> and in my defense, I did not participate in any glacier races. I feel like it's our duty, though, to make up a story about it is. you when you're gone and not able to join us here. So I'm just doing my job. Honestly, it wasn't that far off. I've been, mm. I've been, I've had an exciting few weeks. I was in Norway. Yeah. Yeah. Saw lots of snow, lots of ice. Did Highlight some cool things. Highlight from that. Do we have our, another Arctic podcast surfing. just yeah. about this? So yeah. Arctic yeah. surfing. Give us a quick. We'll get into, yeah, a future episode. Okay. We, we can talk talk more about it, but I did have an opportunity up in the Arctic, so in Lofoten, or Lofoten, I believe they pronounce it, so northern part of Norway. I was there with with a group, um, but we actually got in the water, surfed with snowy mountains all around, cold water, the thickest wetsuits that they sell. It was actually like... Was the, it the, cold when you were no, in? No. No. Like when the water would splash your face, and I actually, my my, like the hand piece of my wetsuit was a little big, so I had like water in and out, so, but it was just so fun. It was just pure fun. So it was one of those things that you didn't realize you were cold until, you know, you got out uh, and we're on and the beach in the hail and the snow and the, you know, Hail but, and snow? Yeah. It was. At the same a, time? The weather there was changes. was it It was, uh, I don't know, but it hurt. It hurt the face. Really? So, well, yeah. you're, did it help that you jump into cold water every other Probably, day? Probably. Yeah. So more on this another time, but yeah, that surfing experience was very cool okay. and beautiful, beautiful country. So Can you share anything about your your adventure as soon as you came back from the glaciers? Um, probably. I can probably share more later, but yeah, I've had some back-to-back. I was actually um, out in Vermont last week with the U.S. Army, and I got to climb ice and do some mountaineering, and it's been a mm. eventful. What I've done in the last month is way cooler than what my life is okay, usually Brandon, like. Okay, Brandon, now so. you. What have you been up to the last month? <laughs> Nothing that cool. <laughs> Spending my time here in this office recording people, editing people, you know, the good stuff. It's yeah. not a, a good, it's not indicative of how my life usually is, but it's it's been a uh, wild whatever, ride. Whatever, Natalie, whatever. It's, you're all over the yeah. place. But I'm you know what? Winter is behind us, mm-hmm. just about. I mean, we still got snow and ice out there. But I'm not I think, ruling anything out at this point. You never know. Yeah. But I think, I know that if I'm ready for spring, that probably means that most people are ready for spring, because we all know. I love winter probably as much as anyone. Great so segue into... We're shifting gears. Yes, great segue into today's show and our guest. Yes. So without further ado, we will welcome in our guest, Alan Forager Chef on social media. You are a expert forager, 
chef, TV extraordinaire. World-renowned. World-renowned and award-winning. Mm-hmm. We're excited to have you here today. Of all Welcome the awards the you've won, what's your most proud, prestigious award to you? The Beard. I, w- I was at Heartland, and we got nominated like six, Lenny got nominated like six years in a row. And every single year, we would wait for the nominations to come. And, you know, it was a collaborative menu. So, you know, the guys on the station, all of us, we were making the menu. Like, we had, you know, skin in the game. And every year, he would go, and then we didn't get it. And it was something that I thought that I would never see because I stopped running restaurants like five years ago. So I never thought that would be available to me. It was the only, it was the only thing I ever wanted. And to be able to get it for a show that we made to try to get people outside that we put the marketing was my Facebook page. That's pretty cool. It Just is me cool. and one other person and one editor. You know, it was that that was incredible. So definitely the beard. Well, the journey of social media and the impact that it has, you know, you mentioned Facebook. I mean, the ability to reach people on your own today is absolutely incredible. And you have an amazing story to tell journey. Um, maybe we start from where you grew up because you are from Minnesota. You don't live in Minnesota currently, but, uh, where, where's home for you growing up and where do you live now? Home for me was Wilmer, Minnesota. And well, my parents split up, so I would live in Wilmer with my mom. And then my family's ancestral home is by Grove city. Okay. So that's where my dad's farm is. And that's where our wind farm is actually now. Uh, then I moved to the twin cities to go to college and just two years ago, I moved to Menominee. I'm going to be trying to come back to the Twin Cities. I'm just a little far away from my family. We'll see with the interest rates and stuff. We'll see how that works. But I love Wisconsin, too. And I'd basically been living there on my girlfriend's very large uh, farm for a number of years. So I, I love Minnesota and Wisconsin. I'm right on the border it feels weird to say I live in Wisconsin. I feel like I live in both states because I'm and I'm in both states all the time. I could be in Wisconsin one day, you know, to South Dakota the next day, Minnesota. I'm kind of all over the place, but Minnesota is where my heart's at. Yeah, for sure. So we were just chatting before we, we got rolling here about the, the reason you're here in town. There's two partly to speak with us today, but tell the audience at home. What else are you doing in town? Oh, I'm picking up a whole lamb. And I think that sets the stage pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Not many people travel. Oh, I'm just picking up a lamb. Mm-hmm. Well, you picking also- up a whole lamb to mm-hmm. butcher it for my elderly friend who can't cut up her own meat. When somebody, <laughs> when somebody today says, what do you do? What do you tell them? That depends on it. every situation is unique. It depends on how much time I have and who, <laughs> who the person is. Do they know what wild food is? Uh, a lot of times I just say, I'm an author. Or I said, but first and foremost, I'm a chef, right? I spent 15 years in the culinary industry, breaking my hump, and you know, learning learning the hard way about how restaurants work. So first and foremost, you know, when I go and speak at the American Culinary Federation, they say, "Here's Chef Allen." You know, that's something the culinary industry marks you in a way that you know will never leave. I like to say I'm a little bit Anthony Bourdain, a little bit Indiana Jones. Anthony Bourdain's first, you know. Yeah. What about the foraging world? Do they? How do they introduce you? Here's Forager Allen. Uh, most people just say Chef Allen. Chef Allen, or just Allen is fine. Yeah, you know, it's fine. Gotcha. Well, for listeners at home, give us an idea of how you kind of entered into this world of both cooking, working with food, and of course, working with wild food and foraging. 
Yeah, so I was a special case at at restaurants I worked at. You know, I'd worked in a number of different restaurants before I got to restaurants that were locally sourced, that sourced local ingredients. And it was at those places, first working under Andy Lilja at a couple different spots, and then uh, when Andy, he will say that he fed me to Lenny, to working with Chef Lenny Russo at Heartland. That, uh, those were my most formative years. And I basically got trained on the job. I'd cooked with all kinds of stuff. And now I saw products coming in that were hyper-seasonal. We only worked with products from within 200 miles of Minnesota. So we, we would have a list of purveyors that most chefs today, would th- it would make them go insane. A lot of some chefs will have one purveyor, right? Cisco truck shows up, mm-hmm. everything you need. Okay, we would have maybe one purveyor. This guy only brings thimbleberries. Okay, the next person you only bring currants. You're talking a list of people, of local people is huge. So mushrooms would come in, and I basically got to work with these things on the job before I found them, and I would. See one, cook it, taste it, make a dish with it, put it on the menu that day. And one day I was cooking a chick, I was cleaning a chicken of the woods. I'd put it on the menu the night before. The next day I was out playing disc golf before work because I like to play disc golf and it's free, something I could do because you don't make any money cooking. And my friend and I were walking over this bridge and I looked down and I was like, Mike, this is a chicken of the woods. <laughs> I just cleaned this yesterday. yesterday. And it was that moment. It was like the light went on. I was like, this is not some unattainable thing. This is more about timing and, you know, hopefully some rain. And, yeah, and from there I just went and bought myself uh, every piece of mushroom literature that I could find. And I thought – first I thought I was going to be rich. I was like, I'm going to sell all these mushrooms. (laughs) You're going to be lucky to fill your gas tank, right? But I got to bring them in, learn what was safe – learn the most commonly available species, and then interact and cook with them, put them on the menu, sometimes the same day that I would pick them. And the more I learned about the very common species, then sometimes you find things that all the time, you find things that you don't know what they are. And now you want to know them all. It's like Pokemon. How long ago was this, or how old were you roughly when that chicken of the woods came into the kitchen? That was a little over 10 years ago. Okay. I was going to say, I I love that you brought up chicken of the woods right away. We, you know, love sharing this stuff with people so that hopefully the folks listening at home can, can do this themselves. And, and that's one that was one of the first ones that actually Travis, you and I were talking about a project on the phone. The first time that I found it, I was like, I think, I think I got it. And I think it's one of those that can be a good introductory mushroom like morels and some of these other things that are available very soon here in the spring that people who are newer into it, maybe more hesitant that they can be somewhat easily identified and, and can hopefully get people introduced into foraging I've, so, I've read your your bio and i think your your full story is pretty inspiring would you mind continuing down the line of tragedy to triumph yeah well while i was at heartland you know now i'm i'm going out and picking mushrooms all the time like darn near as many days of the week as i can and i got bit by tick and it was embedded in my chest. I picked it off. I threw it off. Uh, there, there was a couple of them. I also like led a foray up by Malax, and I got one there too. And I was playing a fire, and I knew I was, but I also didn't have health insurance. Well, I got, uh, I got really sick, and then all the the bullseyes showed up, and then I got the Bell's palsy, and 
I couldn't hear out of my ear. My left eye didn't work, and it sunk back into my skull. I couldn't talk. Uh, chef made me uh, made me go onto the salad station, called me New Salad Girl, uh, or the Pirate. I had to cook. I had to cook with an eye patch and earplugs, and I know health insurance. And that, that was that was like the darkest point of my life. Uh, one of my friends is a. Amateur comedian, and what he says about that time, his name's Mike Rasmussen, and he he will say, it was like you you'd say, I'm mostly tick now, <laughs> like you just look at me like my eyes all sunken in. It was crazy. I got doxycycline. Uh, the doxycycline they got into me, and thankfully, when I was laying on the hospital bed, and they said we want to do a spinal tap, I said, and I don't think anyone in America this is a separate topic. I don't think anyone in America should have to say anyone, anyone in the world should have to say how much is that going to cost. And when they said like eight thousand dollars, it's like peace. I'm out of here. I'm taking my chances. And luckily, it did not get into my spine, or I'd have a lot more residual effects. Uh, I did have. Uh, the Lyme exacerbated a pre-existing condition I had with, it's they're called cluster headaches, and basically I'd have like five or six headaches a day. It went chronic. Like the moment that the Lyme kicked in, I felt it interact like in my brain with the other thing. It, Lyme is so crazy. It's It felt like there was an alien inside my body. That is the best way to describe it. It felt like there was a sentient being inside of me. And like the brain fog, I remember running off the line like in tears one day. It it really messed with my emotions, uh, not just my cognitive function, but like my emotions, my memory. It was really messed up. Then after that, eventually I got uh, I got a chance and the opportunity to open up the first restaurant that I was the executive chef at, which is called the Salt Cellar. Went about two years. That was a mixed bag. Learned a lot of things kind of a funky concept uh, to try to mash with wild foods like a retro steakhouse, right? Before you keep going on that, I got a question about the limes. How long did that last and what ultimately ended up? Is it still affect you at all today? So after the doc- doxycycline kicked in, the I could feel, you, you could feel, I could feel that the lime was, had either like totally dissipated or was extremely weakened. I don't mm-hmm. know how to describe it besides that, but I could feel when the doxy kicked in. It was like I'd been purged of something. But the residual effects of the Bell's palsy and the brain fog and the kind of like emo- garbled emotions, that went on for at least six or seven months. Wow. Yeah. But you, looking at you, have no idea that you've ever gone through something like that. So when did everything, appearance-wise, and your face and everything return back? To like six or seven months, and it was a gradual yeah. process. Okay. Yeah, it was a slow, gradual process. You probably have a completely different appreciation for the wild world now or respect for it or, uh, you know, like when you go out there, I'm guessing you probably are prepared differently than you were. I never thought that I would be a Lyme disease prevention advocate, but it's exactly what I've become. And what I tell everyone is, yeah, use permethrin. It is like the only thing because it is not only Lyme now. Babesiosa or Lichiosis, Lyme, the Lone Star Tick. I right. mean, you, you have entire websites dedicated to people that have alpha gal and cannot consume a meat now. I had a friend that, that got the lone star. Exactly, it's a hunter's disease. Yes, now. totally. And he's a big hunter, and now he's deer hunting, and he can't eat any of the meat and Hope anything like fish. That, yeah, exactly. He now, after I want to say like three years, 
has been able to start adding meat back into his diet. But you're right. I mean, it it's a life-altering thing. People always ask, too. They're like, does this work for uh, ticks? And I'm like, no, it's permethrin. If it doesn't say permethrin on it, like, off the DEET, no, that doesn't do it. That's not going to help you out there. It has to have permethrin. And I think it's important that, you know, you bring it up and we're bringing it up today because I think, you know, even when we talk about foraging safety or outdoor safety, often, you know, I do it, we all do it, oh, check for ticks, and that's it. And it, I, I think, you know, it's how I feel. I'm sure it's how you felt. It's like, but that'll, that'll never be me. And so being able to talk about it, be prepared, you know, have stories that recognize that they're help us recognize that, you know, that the risk really is out there is, you know, important for everyone listening so that oh. they can protect themselves because you never think it's going to be you, right? Yeah, and it was really the only thing that gave me, like, the confidence to go back outside after I had Lyme was permethrin because I didn't want to give up foraging and being outside. It was, it was cheap and free something that I could do that didn't cost me anything and I get to learn and I get to eat and harvest ingredients yeah. at the peak freshness, you know, fresher than, you know, most people will ever see these things that we harvest. I didn't want to give that up. And it was, permethrin was my stepping stone to getting back outside and, and being comfortable and not having, you know, complete and total anxiety every time I go out. And now I check for ticks, but it's not something I obsess over. Because honestly, I can't even remember the last time I saw one on me. It's permethrin is that powerful. And what I do, I don't just spray. Uh, I actually have I have a recipe for it that people can print off, where you buy the concentrate, pour it into a bucket, and you dip the entire outfit and let it dry instead of spraying it on. This way, you get, you know, way more penetration. And you just dilute it to the exact consistent, the exact concentration that would be in the bottle. And yeah, you can. You can Where's that recipe online. live? Uh, I can. You can put a note in the show notes. Um, Is it on your website, yep. Forger Chef? Yep. All right. So that people can do it themselves because it's a lot cheaper. Sure. You can do multiple outfits. I usually have like two outfits and I'll wear them for a, a minute mm-hmm. and then I'll wash them and. You can get a couple again. of washes out oh, of it, yeah, though, yeah, and they'll last for a couple of weeks if after a dip, I think. Yes, they and sometimes longer. Yeah. Uh, like, even if you... I've had one friend who she just dipped it once. She dipped an outfit once during the season, washed it a few times, and she used it all season. You know, I like to be a little bit more regular with it. Like, I just set an alarm on my phone. But, yeah, it's there's a number of different ways to do it, but it is definitely what I recommend. We get, you know, whenever we talk about Lyme disease or ticks on our shows, we get a pile of feedback. People want to know. It's one of the most popular topics we touch on. So that's why I was I wanted to touch on it here because I know that somebody listening is probably like, okay, I got to protect myself. What do I do? And if you mention the recipe. So we'll we'll include that as well, but foragerchef.com, right? Um, back to your story, though, in, in this whole journey. You're in a restaurant. You're now the head chef. Keep and then it, the restaurant closes. Yep. <laughs> and then I go to the next restaurant, which was supposed to be like my forever home. And that was Lucia's. So Lucia's, Lucia's and Heartland, they were like the two like cornerstone farm-to-table restaurants. And, and two, two of them in, in the Twin Cities. And I was so excited to go to Lucia's. And for a number of reasons, I mean, maybe like a year later, Lucia's closed too. And I was so depressed. Like I didn't know what to do. Nothing had ever taken away my drive. Like I cook reflexively. I cook and I'm happy 
sad, angry, any emotion, we cook. This is all I've ever done. And it took like my fire away. I was like, this is something is very wrong. So I just took, I took some time and just went and hung out at the farm in Wisconsin and kind of licked my wounds and made a plan of what I was going to do. So that's when I sold the book series. And then shortly after that, we started filming the show. And I started doing some consulting. I worked with a company that's trying to make bacon out of mushroom mycelium. I started working with my friends that uh, run the lamb and goat farm. So I started you know, doing their social media, product photography. We do grant-funded video series about lambs and lamb and goats, like everything you'd want to know about lambs and goats. And now I do a big kind of weird combination of writing and speaking uh keynotes and stuff like that and a lot a lot of things yeah it's yeah. it's hard to describe in just a few sentences what i do to people so you definitely have a great presence both on social media and your website which i can say i myself as you know have used personally some of the the recipes on there so what kind of uh you know inspired you to to go into that realm of actually sharing your knowledge your recipes your creations with just kind of the public my creations. The they, they are, though. Sorry. I used to have yeah. this guy that would send me emails and pictures of just strangest things, and it'd always be my creation. And then the description of it, my creation. Uh, coconut cantaloupe kiwi lime bread was one. Wow. Anyway, uh, I was living in my friend's basement because I had to give up my apartment in order to be able to afford to take a pay cut to work at Heartland. And I kind of bounced around and basement hopped for a few years while I was doing that. And... I would cook my my landlord, one of my closest friends. Uh, I cook him breakfast all the time. And a lot of times it would be things that I had picked off the ground in the woods the day before. And he, he was into it. You know, we'd take, we would all go hunting morels together and chanterelles and all the summer mushrooms. And he's like, this is so cool. We should, you should share this with people. We're going to start you a website. And I was like, okay, great. So we start it and then it's done, right? Oh, no, no. Thing. Over, you know, a million words later, it, it's still still going. And it became, it became you know, a learning tool for me, a, a way to share, share wild food in a way that I think is attractive. When I started, we didn't use the word foraging. There was no Facebook foraging groups. There were some wild food books. And then you look at them and the pictures are just god-awful. Right? It's like, this will not inspire people to go outside and enjoy the things that I'm enjoying. So that was an, a that was an aspect of it, too. Yeah, I think the foraging over the last several years, it's become extremely popular with our generation. Um, you see it all over social media. Morel's probably number one, right? Would you agree that's probably the number one sought after? In the Midwest. Yeah. For sure. What comes next? Chicken of the Woods. Then what? And chanterelles. Okay. Um, and then hens. In the Midwest here. It's mm -hmm. going to be different all around the country. And the Chicken of the Woods will actually come in spring. If at the end of morel season every year. Uh, and could, Because all the trees have like a different clock, right? I have early trees. I have late trees. I have middle season trees. My spring trees, if we get a good rain at the tail end of morel season... You will get one of the best flushes of chicken of the woods of the year. 
right at the end of morale season. How long is their season typically last? Which season? Chicken of the Woods. Chicken of the Woods, yeah. Well, it'll probably go it's it's long depending on the rain. It'll go from the you know, very it could go from the very end of May until like August, September. You know, that's a good season. Every year is a little bit different, especially when you think about very different than morales. Yeah, once it starts to get cold, then you're going to see them a little bit less. Okay, so do you hunt year round? Do you travel around the world foraging now? Are you looking up, looking forward to a certain season coming up? Obviously, I would assume morales, but how? What does your year look like now? My year is is kind of whatever I want it to be. I, I spend my time, you know, kind of figuring out what is, what do I need to try? What, uh, what have I not tried yet? But it's also just like, this is how I live. Like, it's like a way of life. So during the season, I'm outside every day. I eat wild food every day. And in the winter, I eat a lot of meat and things I've preserved. Once spring comes around, it will be mostly plants. And I will eat probably, you know, at least four to eight ounces of wild greens Every day. That you've picked. Yeah. Oh, I'll pick about three to 400 pounds every year. And and about 200 pounds go to a big event that I do of various greens. I mean, many, many different kinds. So So maybe maybe this is a good segue. I think we have have so many questions for you. You're obviously a wealth of knowledge um, and your story itself is inspiring. But for those listening that like us are getting eager to get outside this spring and to start. Yeah, we all are. We all are. I could see it in your eyes. It started to light up. Um, What types of, especially speaking, you know, in Minnesota, the upper Midwest here, maybe, you know, we can start running through some of the things that you are excited to forage for kind of early in the season um, that, that other people at home might be able to, to go after too. Yeah. Well, the first thing that I'll be looking forward to, like most other people, is morels. Absolutely the first thing. And I think one thing that some people might not know is that we get a couple different kinds in the state. And the black morels will dependably come a week earlier than the common morels. So those are going to be above the 45th parallel. And they are similar to common morels in, in that they like disturbance, Right but their tree associations are typically a little bit different. So you're going to be looking for, like, say you're going to go up by Duluth or Bemidji, both good places to look. You're going to look for young aspen stands. If you're looking for a place that has not been, say, struck by lightning, flooded, clear-cut, or burned, you're going to be looking in uh, aspen stands where the aspens are about shoulder-width apart and the thickness of a pop can. And you want the stands, they should be at a point where they start to thin themselves. That's the disturbance That's in the natural patch, uh, so to speak. So after, let's say, a clear cut, like in, in my world, I know the rough grouse habitat in the aspens is ideal at year seven, eight. Starts to be okay around year five. But like I can look and say that was clear cut in 2014. So I want to be hunting there in 2011 or 2000. And 22 roughly because i know that's going to be peak time in mushroom terms for morels after the clear cut what is peak year after the clear cut so for the blacks and i and i have limited experience with these but it, it will be but i do have more experience with common morels with with logging and disturbance when you say common you mean yellow 
or grays? Yeah, Markella Americana. Yeah. That's yellows and grays. And then Markella Septentrionalis is going to be the black one that's that's in northern Minnesota. Yep. So the con- the common rails, those seem to be the patches that I have seen that have been logged or burned. They seem to have a gradual build, where the black morels seem to be like the the year previous is going to be better. Um, so right now I'm looking for places that were burned or cut last year, or maybe the year before. But then it'll kind of peter out and the common morel patches I've had that have been logged and burned, they seem to get small. They start out small and then build to a, to an apex and then kind of peter out. One of the questions are, are the things that I, I've read different things. I feel like people, you know, on the internet, will say different things. And I don't remember if, which we went with on our morel mushroom foraging podcast that we did last year. But a question that comes up a lot is when you harvest the morel, are they letting off spores that then will repopulate? So there's some, you know, people say, use a basket, shake them out. I mean, I won't lie. I do that just in case. People talk about, do you slice them or do you pull the whole root up? Can you shed some light on that whole area of confusion out there? Yeah, I actually just uh, re-put together a couple different videos just on harvesting, like taking them from the field to the fridge. Mm Mm-hmm. Not even cooking, just the nuts and bolts. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what you do. When you go and you find the morels, I cut them with a knife, and then I hide the stem remnants so that other people will not see that I have been there. <laughs> depending Smart on the man. patch. If I'm in a patch that's like really competitive in the Twin Cities, it's going to be like that. So I'm cutting them. And this isn't. This has nothing to do with like cut versus pull or that argument, which I hope we don't have to talk about because it's a quagmire. Uh, uh, <laughs> Enough said. You're just you're you're cutting them because you do not want dirt attached to your food. And we clean the mushrooms. We put clean mushrooms in the basket every year with all kinds of different types. People send me pictures like the vis- victory basket. Things like half dirt. Like you see the morel and then a, like a dirt clod on the bottom. Once you get a little bit of dirt in that basket, it's just going to get all over them. And now you're going to have a gritty meal. It is very hard to remove the dirt once it's on there. Anybody that's cleaned a mushroom that uh, it rained, got splashed dirt on, and then dried will know how difficult that is. Mm-hmm. But it's okay. Those can be dehydrated. As far as bags... I do not like these mesh bags at all, and for a number of different reasons. So the mushroom, to, answer, to kind of answer your question, the mushrooms are spreading spores. Uh, when they get to the point of spore, sporulation, they're going to be spreading them like all the time, you know. Naturally. So you don't Naturally. need to. When they you pop don't out of the, you don't need them. to shake them like a yep. salt shaker. Yeah. This, right. yeah, they're spreading the spores. Whether you're, they're spreading the spores either way. You're breathing them when you're walking in the mm-hmm. woods. You have no idea. Yeah, they're going to grow in your lungs. Yes. Uh, no, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're everywhere out there by the millions and millions. But these these mesh bags that I see people with, the problem with them is not that they're mesh. There's nothing wrong with mesh, per se, because you're going to get airflow. And because you also, now you've picked the food, it's like a living thing. Mushrooms are closer to meat than they are to vegetables. So you need to chill. You want to cool them down. You need to treat them like meat. And these bags, the problem is that they do not have hard sides. So when you put, you put a couple morels in there, you're okay. You start putting more morels in there, what is happening in this bag where it's cinched? Now you're having friction. And then when you come home, you got a bag of crumbles and you just, just throw those in the backyard. 
I have a hard, I use hard sided containers when I'm hunting. I have a backpack. It's an Italian model with an aluminum frame. It just looks like a backpack. It's also not see-through because if you're walking around with a mesh bag full of morels in the woods during spring in the Midwest, <laughs> yeah. you might as well have a target on your back. Right. Your, your, your patch might as well have a target on it. But that's, I think he's getting at, you know, yeah. a lot. Like, I, I'm of the same opinion here that you're not going to be spreading seeds yeah. by carrying them in a mesh bag or like a... Um, what are like a potato sack or something like that? You know, a lot of people yeah. think that's the only way to do it. That's how you keep them growing. But I mean, we we can and I think debate a, all yeah, this. All I think day. a lot of people think like you know, with me for example, it's like there's got to be no way that this works. But it's like bringing a banana on a fishing boat. There's no way that it ruins your day of fishing. But like, I'm just not gonna do Tell it. Tell that to the group and of I guys think... that almost died with me out in the middle of the ocean because. Because you brought a banana? Brought some bananas. There you go. Yeah. So I feel like it's it's in a way it's but now it's good to know. It's just silly, so you don't need to waste your time. A a grocery bag, a paper bag is fine. Plastic is not ideal only for the reason that it is going it's a terrarium Mm -hmm. and they can't breathe. Mm -hmm. You know, we gotta remember it's like meat. We wanna keep we wanna cool them down after we pick them and how long will they last in the refrigerator after you clean them, wash them? Um Dry them, Natalie, right? Yeah. And then uh, this is what I I did that I guess I didn't realize I was doing, mainly because I don't keep them long enough for them to oh, yeah. get moldy. But I would, I wanted them because mushroom is, you know, what is it, 90% water or something like that? Or it's a high percentage of water inside. So when I wash them, I would put a damp paper towel at the bottom just to keep moisture in the container with them in the refrigerator but that is actually not a good idea because you're allowing, um, what what am I trying to say? That it doesn't like mold. Yeah. Like well, you don't want to seal seal yeah. it up in a bag with water, right? Yeah. What, but, how do you? What's the best way to keep them in refrigerator? Set us straight. Yeah. Yeah. So you you're on the right track there. With the, it depends on how how wet your paper towel is. What I do is I take the morels and I keep them whole. I clean them whole, and you can when you cut one and open, they like cut the stem. You can see inside it should be pristine. So I store them whole. You can always cut them up before you cook them because we want to keep their shape. And then I store them vertically on top of a paper towel in a hard-sided container so they are stored in the way that they grow. So that's an old chef tick. We ah. store fish like that, store meat like that. Vegetables are stored vertically, root vegetables, uh, whatever. But then also the water drains, and this is in my video, the water drains out of the stem onto the paper towel. Uh, Beautiful. A better way to do it is the method my friend and a, the most talented mushroom hunter, Olina, from Ukraine, has shown me. She used to bring me chanterelles and many other mushrooms uh, layered in trays beneath fern leaves. Hmm. So I'll take a handful of creeping bellflower or um, violets and put them into a little deli container. And then I'll put the mushrooms on top of that. And then I put a lid on. And I don't have to. I don't have to open it up. I'll open them up once in a while to let it respire. But when you do that, when you put just a handful of plants in the container, you do not have as much water as like a wet paper towel, and it is a much better way to moderate the humidity. Interesting. And you're not going to get mold as fast. As long as we're still on morels, um, I I don't know if there's a better way to cook them than just 
sauteing them in butter. Is there a better way or is that the way? This depends on how many morels you have. Okay, let's do both. What yeah. would you tell somebody like me who might find like seven morels in a day? How would you prepare that? And then how would you, pre- how would you tell Travis who might find 700? <laughs> how would you prepare that many? Uh, well, I think I didn't answer how long they'll last in the fridge. So after yes, I clean you. them and yes. chill them, okay. they will last, a, but they'll last, the age, the shelf life also depends on the age of each individual mushroom, right? Yeah. So if you harvest an older morel, if it's got rusty coloring or, you know, it's got some bug damage, those will go bad faster. If there's no bugs and they're perfect, they'll last a week. Absolutely. So someone might want to separate them out if they find a bunch of, you know, a variety of ages. The first thing I do when I get home from the field is I separate the mushrooms by size and quality. Smaller morels, I pick, like, last year we got this brand new treat. Big grandpa tree. Like 200 little babies. Yeah. Yeah. I have no problem picking the little babies because they are the perfect size to fit whole after they're dried on a spoon in soup. Mm. The best. Like, little, just fit on a spoon. They're perfect. The bigger ones, like the big pigs... Those all get dehydrated. Those are powder. Uh, those are stock. Those are morel, dried morel butter. And then the most perfect, the primo, the triple A, five-star perfect ones, those I'm going to eat fresh. Yeah. Um, oh, gosh. Okay. So what's the biggest morel you've ever found? Have you ever weighed them? Like over you- a foot long and over a pound. Over a pound. What was it? Total? In Minnesota? Yeah. Wow. It's, uh, they, I, I think they used to call them... Markella Craspies. I have a picture of it next to a ruler. Uh, I think they called it Markella Craspies. They called it Bigfoot because it's a giant buttressed stem. And it's like a variation of Markella Americana, the common morel, that for whatever reason, it's like, hey, it's time to get huge now, guys. And they just get absolutely Do massive. Do you find those are later in the season? Yes, those That's are the tail So my yes. biggest one, I, I got into this. Like I had um, a mailman, you know, scale down to the ounces. And my heaviest one weighed 15 ounces. So just, just shy of a pound. Just yeah. shy. Like I was like, oh, come on. You know, maybe if I had to just cut a little bit more of that stem up, I would have hit. But it's like the size of your head. Yeah. And they'll be mostly stem yep. at, at that point. They're like, they'll like they be like two thirds stem. But they're just like, you see that thing. It is an incredible thing to see. Most it's people like are never going to see that in their steak. life. Yeah. I mean, you put that, that's a whole meal right there. Just the one. Yeah, Brandon. We never finished the cooking yes. question. Thanks for keeping oh, yeah, us yeah. Yeah. We, we do have to. Thank you. Yeah. Before we move on from morales, yeah, we do have to hear. And you can just, you know, give one or two. <laughs> Our producer, you've got food on your mind. Um, oh, yeah. Favorite way to cook morales? Well, I mean, you can't. I can't give you just one. Um, if somebody's really new to them, just eat them. Just cook them in a pan and some butter and put a little salt on them the first time. Then if I, you know, if I have another person with me, I'll probably make moris a la creme, saute the morels, and I'll just leave them halved. Uh, or if they're small enough that I could, if they're a bite size, I'll leave them whole because sauce likes to go on the inside. Oh, gosh. And you add a little we bit of shallot. We need to start doing I video know. podcasts and I then we cook some of this up in here. Now I'm getting okay. excited. You add a little shallot. You get the morels yeah. in the pan. You add a little shallot. You cook that until they just start to turn brown around the edges. Then you add a splash of white wine. You cook that down. And then you add a splash of cream. If I have a little bit of demi-gloss in the freezer, that will always go in that. I, I have some saved just for this year. 
And yeah, you add a splash of cream and then you have some grilled bread and you just put the morels and their natural sauce on the bread and that's it. For morels, and that sounds delicious, but for morels and other mushrooms, what kind of heat level are you using? Because I know like sometimes if you cook them on low heat for too long, they can get little... Dehydrated? Yeah. Well, they need to be thoroughly cooked because morels are toxic raw. So medium... And you're cooking. If you're cooking okay. them in butter, you need to make sure not to burn the butter. You can always cook them in a combination of butter and oil, which will uh, increase the smoke point. Can we talk about ramps, leeks, other greens that grow that people can harvest at the same time? Mm-hmm. Um, when do they typically sprout? They'll be before morels. They'll be. We could see them. Okay, so in Wisconsin, I'm going to be like two weeks behind you guys southern minnesota they could be up in like two weeks mm-hmm. so mid-april yeah, yeah. It's it, and it's yeah. also interesting too so i i have several friends that hunt in different parts of the state and i might be further north than somebody but find them on average like eight to ten days ahead of my friend an hour and a half south but there's something about the elevation because mm-hmm. temperature in my opinion of this Temperature dictates when they're going to grow in certain properties. And it's not necessarily the further north you grow, it's elevation. So the ground temperature uh, grows. So if, if you're waiting for somebody in your area to tell you that they're there or somebody, uh, it, I guess what I'm trying to say is you want to start hunting early because you don't want to risk missing the season. They can be short-lived. Yeah, and a great indicator, a great way to make your own indicator is to ramps transplant like a dream. I have almost 100% success rate. You could transplant them. Uh, you have a lower success rate with like cut, like cutting off just the root parts from the bulbs. I've had almost 100, 100% success rate just plant, transplanting full plants, but you can also them grow up. them from seed. Yeah. And then you plant those in your yard, and they will be an indicator, and you'll see the, the ramps come up. you be like, okay, it's time to go out now. They'll be a little bit early because it's usually hotter, warmer around the soil of a house. But that's, and it's just nice to bring the wild to you, you know. I take, I gather the wild seeds from all over the place to make, you know, my secret garden in my tiny backyard. So for somebody that is going to be trying to look for ramps for the first time this year, or maybe they've been unsuccessful in the past, what are the telltale signs of identifying them in the wild? The telltale signs? Well, it's going to have an oval, depending on the species, we have two different species. We have Allium burdickii and then we have Allium trichocum. Uh, the Burdickia is the thin or the narrow ramp or the small ramp has a slightly milder flavor and they have a white stem instead of a red stem. So those uh, are also more apt to be confused with Lily of the Valley, uh, which I ate before really? I knew. Really? Yes, absolutely. Before I knew what ramps are. What? I did not happened? eat it. I, I tasted it and spat it out okay. and it tasted like I was guzzling hot sauce for three days and it didn't go away. Mm-hmm. It stayed that long? Three full days. Wow. Like constant, you constant burning right capsaicin. Away. So I really think that, you know, people that find morels, they know they're confident this is mm-hmm. safe, right? It's so easy to distinguish. If it's hollow, obviously that's a big deal too. But you see that sponge sitting there and you're like, yep, that's a morel. There's so much wild, there's so many other wild plants growing that I think people can be a little bit nervous. I think that's it. But I'm not 100% sure, and I don't want to get sick, so I'm just going to leave it. Um, are there any plants that look similar to a ramp or a leaf? Yeah, lily, lily of the valley. And I'm going to say that ramps are really like a good beginner plant because 
if you cut them, they reek like the greatest woodsy garlic you've ever smelled. Yeah. And there's there's nothing that smells like a ramp. And I think there's something to be said. We we had a, a guest on this winter who mentioned if you're out there and you're really trying to do your due diligence, if you have a photo of what you're looking for and you compare, more often than not, you want to, you know, get things double checked. You got to be certain before you eat anything. But if you're actively trying to identify, not just guessing or saying, I think I remember what this looks like. If you're really looking at a, a picture of things and, you know, checking what, you know, a book says about what to look for and what, you know, might be a, a lookalike, chances are good, especially with some of these, you know, more intro um, things you can look for that if you're doing your job, you should be able to identify them. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I'll defer to my friend Sam Thayer, and his his quote is, I think it's uh, it's something along the lines of, unless you can proclaim and describe the identity and features of a plant to a group of botanists, you should not be eating it. I like that. So there's a lot of information that gets thrown around the internet. People will search real quickly, is this A, B, C, whatever it is. Um, but I feel like there should be reputable sources that people can check. What did you, you know, in your process, now that you hunt all kinds of different wild plants and, and things, um, is there a source that you go to to say, yes, I trust this source. I trust that what it's telling me is accurate. I can eat this. So there isn't just one source, and you got to remind me because we still have one last thing about morels, the most important of all. Uh, don't let me forget. Uh, there's not just one source. So when we're talking about identification of anything that we're going to put inside of our bodies, we have a, a suite of tools. It's like Photoshop, right? I have a whole bunch of tools that we're going to use. We have field guides, okay? Those are one tool. We have online Facebook groups and things like that where we can just sit there and watch people harvest things in our area. We have things like iNaturalist identification apps. Some of my friends don't like it when I talk about those, but they do have their uses. They are just not the one tool that you rely upon. They are to be used in combination with others. In-person learning is the other way to learn, and there's all kinds of great, you know, great foraging educators around town. you got... Tim Clemens, uh, Maria at Four Seasons Foraging, I guess, I know you guys had on the show, and Ariel Bonkowski, who's probably the most knowledgeable about mushrooms, most mu knowledgeable about mushrooms as far as identification in the state, and she's up in Duluth. Okay. Mike Kempenick, I think he does quite a bit in this metro area too. No? <laughs> uh, I don't know what he's up to. So gotcha. I have my finger up because I needed to remind you there's one more thing. About morels. Okay. What was it? So this is the most important thing. Morels, at least in our area, they appear to be transitioning. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, what, what are the trees people think of? Elms, elms. Right? We think of elms and only elms. Stop thinking about only elms. The elms are rotting back into the ground. And I knew about this. There was rumblings in the mushroom community. All my old-timer friends are calling me saying, hey, well, I heard, heard this guy's not even picking with elms anymore. I'm like, ah, I wasn't paying that much attention. Last year, I went and talked to two of the most talented mushroom hunters, talented morale hunters that I know. I am not that great. I, I, I do okay, but I still count my mushrooms by the each. I don't count them by the pound. These guys just count by the pound. 
and they look at me like I'm silly when I say things like, I picked 300 this year. How many pounds is that, you fool? <laughs> what these guys told me and what, what we have been suspecting for a while that I'm really excited to dive into this year and in the coming years is learning how to find the new tree that's being disturbed that the morels are growing with, and that tree is a green ash. Hmm. And the two hunters in Wisconsin that I talked to, both of them have stopped completely looking for elms at all and now exclusively look for green ash because of the emerald ash borer. So, yeah, Dutch elm disease was a huge contributor to all the mushrooms in, in Iowa. It, it's, it's central Minnesota. It's southern Minnesota. It's Wisconsin. It's Iowa. It's Dakotas as well. But, yeah, the elms aren't the tree that you necessarily, like you mentioned with the blacks, you know, the black mushroom morels, um, and yeah, the, the Dutch elm disease really contributed to the boom here for us locally, but I found them under apple trees. I found them under other trees too. And the key though, I think is when I'm out hunting, I always tell people this, I am not looking at the ground for mushrooms. I am looking up in the air. I'm looking for trees that do not have leaves on them. I'm looking for trees that are not completely bare of bark that still have bark, but it's starting to slough. It's starting to fall. And that's, I go straight to that. And then the base is where I look. And I'll do that for most trees that are dying. But I guess inevitably I find elms and I'm still finding morels under those elm trees. But if I see an apple tree, some of my big, biggest halls will come under an apple tree some years. Or, uh, you know, what other trees here are you finding them locally, I guess? My best spots are all elms. Sometimes yeah. I like a combination of elms with sumac. I, I think can be can be very good. One of my best patches is is elms interspersed with sumac, and then they're a lot of times they're like maybe that some are around the elm trees, and then they're just randomly coming up in the sumac too, because sumac also self thins. I can't speak to the science of that or, or anything, but yeah, there's so many. Morels are so strange because there's so many different tree associations that they can have, mm-hmm. and they're going to continue to come with the elms. Yeah. You know, obviously, there's going to be they're going to be coming with the elms for years to come. But people are getting really good hauls with green ash, and I think that's something people should know about. Because the other thing that you know that any morel hunter knows around here is when you go looking for elms like you're describing, which your description is perfect, that is like the perfect point. They're sloughing the bark, but it's not bare. Yeah. It's not bare. Because once it gets to a point where the tree's like totally dead, then the other mushrooms are going to come in, you're going to get the pheasant backs, and other things are going to come on and start taking over the tree. Uh, You know what it looks like when there's deer pads cut going, you know, in a beeline. To the oh, what's there? Oh, th- that's an old dead elm. Yeah, you go through a, a park. Do you park think that they're the eating spring. the mushrooms though? The, the deer? deer pads, human deer pads. Oh, deer, yeah, Morel yeah, yeah, yeah. Deer pads. Yeah. Gotcha. So there's less competition, is what yeah. I'm trying to say. Yep. You know, you can switch things up. You can go, you know, fight everyone else looking for morels under elms, or you can branch out, do the difficult thing, try to find some new territory, and have the rewarding experience that comes with it. Have you ever grown a morel? successfully grown them yourself no that is way above my skill level (laughs) i I just grew i grew my first mushrooms last year i grew wine caps and i grew bluets in the backyard that i picked and grew on compost and then last week i grew my first abalone mushroom 
I don't even know what that is. It's a variety of oyster. Okay. But it's like really big and thick and has a texture kind of like a clam. Let's expand beyond morels. I was going to say, there's that corner of goodies over I there. I know. Since yeah. We're at about an hour. Or so. Are we Are really? We're getting near oh, there. We're no. getting near. Yeah, we're at about 50. Okay, so I want to okay. show and tell. Okay. I didn't even there. get to tell you about Sochan. Uh, we'll, we'll get there. We, <laughs> we can, we can, do that too. We can yeah, quickly go a few things. We're staying on track. Can we do a two part? Yeah, we need a two part. Do you guys have any plastic spoons? You can. I can run in there. Right there. Is there not one right there? If you have some, that'd be great. I'll be right back. I'm going to go get them. Okay, so well, okay, well, Travis is grabbing us some spoons. As you might be, you might tell if you're listening at home, this is a little bit of a show and tell. So Chef Allen brought in a few things, um, and it looks like all, all food that you brought in. Is that yes. right? Walk us through what you are plating right now. Uh, I'm not plating anything. I'm just putting some snacks on a plate for you to eat. So we're gonna do a taste test between butternuts and black walnuts. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, so what I'm seeing right now is a white plate that looks like it has two different varieties of walnuts. One yes. is one is walnut and one is butternut, one is you said? Black walnut. Black walnut. And then butternuts. I'm back. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. So my, my grandpa used to harvest all these out on the farm, and he'd crack them all winter long. And what's this? This is a syrup made from our largest wild cherry, the sand cherry. That grows up in the pine barrens, and it's like a little mini shrub. It's like this big, like just tiny little cherry, but it makes the biggest cherries of all of our cherries. That's the like late a, summer, fall thing. The yes, this is uh, the like uh, maybe the second week of August. Okay, it's beautiful. It's so dark red; it's almost black. Yeah, and you can just it put a like little a bit of the spoon yeah. in there. Okay, so this is a syrup I make of any sort of juicy fruit. It's called a gastrique. Should I just taste this yeah, as is? Okay. So, so I'm I, tasting I had, uh, the, the cherry. Yeah, it's just cherries. Brandon, get in on this. Yeah, cherry. Yeah, you got to get over here. Cherries and vinegar and a little sugar. So it's sweet or savory. You mm -hmm. can put it on a panna cotta. You put it on ice cream. You can put it on a duck breast. So I do this I do this with grapes, with all types of cherries, with blueberries. That's outstanding. That's outstanding. Isn't that yeah. fun? And do it's you have a, a recipe for cherry. this on your website? Oh, yeah. What, what's a, what would it be called if somebody uh, wants to look it up? Sweet and Sour Wild Berry Cherry or Grape Syrup. <laughs> I'll send <laughs> you the simple. link. That's yeah. simple. I think I'm ready to set aside to all, all of my hobbies to just do foraging. <laughs> and I'm not going to come up with anything new. I'm just going to memorize your website and just follow in your tracks. Okay. And then if you guys want to taste a little bit of those same cherries in... Uh, some very, very staggeringly nice bourbon. I just a little sip. I brought this from uh, Kentucky last year for a project I was doing, uh, oh. where I was doing a presentation on the white oak biome for uh, Bourbon Month. How long will this last? This mm -hmm. indefinitely. The vinegar lowers the pH to under three point two. You just pour it into the jar hot. You don't even need to water bath can it. Don't tell the FDA I said that. <laughs> Many people do that. You can can it. You can put it in the water bath, too. But it it's not going bad. It's pickled, hmm. right? It's got vinegar in it, so it is very, very stable. It's not going to mold. That vinegar just, like, solidifies the shelf life. You could preserve something by putting it in the syrup, if that makes sense. Yeah. So while we're taste testing, you you know, you've mentioned, we know you do a lot of, you know, presentations and speaking events and teaching. Have you seen an uptick in the amount of people interested in wild food finding their own food has it have you noticed a difference in the last you know well since you've been doing it of course 
I mean, I can look at I, look, I can look at the metrics. It increases like exponentially every year. Do you think how much do you think is it the you know internet and available availability of information, or do you think that there's a you know wider reason behind that? You know, maybe I think there's a wider to... reason. I think Black Forager. I think Alexis is doing a great job of like. It, it had been coming for a while. It's I, I had been referring to it as like a powder keg ready to blow. And she is really just the perfect person to bring the message of wild food and appreciation of it in an easily digestible format to the masses. Can I also add something to that? I think our generation, um, I, I look at our desire to share. You know, in the social media world, uh, being able to share everything, but... There are some people, in, and I, I maybe I'm stereotyping here, I don't know for sure, but like my dad's generation, he would say, well, don't tell people that, then there's not going to be any there for you when you go, or why are you telling people about all that? Or, you know, like, that's not the mentality that I have about this. If I'm finding something, hey, guys, morels are up, you know, and, you know, some people that enjoy the hunt as much as I do now are like, oh, man. I got to get out there, and other people are like, don't tell anybody that. But I do think that there's something about the younger generation wanting to share what they've found out there, and then that increases just like this, huh, I kind of want to try that, you know? And once you try it once, you're like, well, that's cool. I mean, mm -hmm. you can't not – I had, I don't know many people that have gone out and harvested, whether it be an animal that they then ate or a wild food, like, we see here on the table right now that found it themselves. They figured out why, where, picked it, came back, enjoyed it. There's a whole different level of appreciation mm -hmm. once you do that. And it's I fun also to think find things for free. Yeah, you know, it's like yes. people, yeah. What, yeah. What a lot of people yeah. don't understand they haven't done is the adrenaline rush. Mm -hmm. When it's you sheer joy when you see is. that, you know, whatever you're looking for that that first morale or that or seeing somebody else. We've talked about you know if you're bringing somebody else along who hasn't done it and kind of seeing that just like how people just light up when they find what they're looking for. My brother and I were hunting this last year from Morels together and they were out like crazy. And we found a morel bouquet. I don't know if you remember that yes, picture. Yes, oh, I do. Yes, yeah. and it was, I don't know how many on it, but we were like the little schoolgirls. Like yeah. we were jumping up and down, hugging each yeah. other in the middle of the woods, screaming with joy over this mushroom that just popped out of the ground. One other component to this, I, I think too, might have something to do with the popularity is that, you know, often things in society can be like a pendulum, you know, swinging in one direction and then the other direction. And I think that in the last... 80 years we've gotten so disconnected from our food you know we've talked about it before but getting food in the supermarket and you know microwave dinners and things and I, I think that there it's starting to shift back into another the other direction where people are realizing how disconnected we are from well many things but yeah. including food and having that you know innate human desire to I, I want to do it myself I want to see where my food comes from and I think that's probably some of the push too. We got yeah, two it is for me anyway. I'd say yeah. foraging definitely like dovetails with the farm to table movement, mm -hmm. like uh, and a number of other ones. Like there's like Venn diagrams overlapping in a number of different ways. All right, what do we have here? There okay. are six different jars, and it's all been placed nicely out on a platter here for us. Yeah, except my my uh, Chinese. Pawn cakes look a little bit like turds, but it's okay. So first, <laughs> it all looks you, first, you, you harvest all of this, yeah. right? Of course. Okay. So first, you have the walnut versus the white walnut versus black walnut comparison. 
So I'd invite you to try a butternut first, and then after you've eaten it, then try a black walnut and compare the flavor. Tell me what you taste. Now, when you're eating the butternut, it's going to be subtle, but there's a banana hint to it, a hint. And when I make them into ice cream, it almost tastes like there's like banana extract or something. It's hard to taste yeah. when they're fresh, but they're very buttery, low on the tannins. Mm-hmm. They're not going to dry your mouth out. Not bitter. Mm-hmm. Not bitter. Now try the it's black pretty walnut. pretty smooth. And these are fresh from the shell about, you know, hour and a half ago. Very different. Mm-hmm. Very different. Yep. More like caramely. Woodsy, musky. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And then we have two different preparations of black walnuts. Wait, this These one ones, was which one again? The second? That was the black walnut. Okay. Yep. The second one, was, that one has a lot of more flavor that lasts. Yeah, that's say. much stronger. Musky is a very yeah. good word. Yeah. 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 Musky works. Yeah. Now, the next black walnuts are, these are harvested in June, and this is the green walnut that is harvested before the shell has formed in the inside. And I peel them by hand, and then I simmer them in syrup and age them for about six months in a jar. And you get to eat the entire walnut husk and the immature nut meat in the center before the shell is formed. It's an Armenian and Georgian tradition from the Caucasus in Eastern Europe. And so. we'll share a picture of this, but I can say I was thinking, when I first saw this be pulled out, I was thinking it looked almost more like a a, a fig or like a dried fruit of some kind. So. And I cook them with a plant that uh, tastes like, I call it wild vanilla. It's almost like it's caramelized or something. Yeah. Hmm. Good stuff. I really dig the, it's really crunchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Still, after that, and That's really a black sweet. walnut hull. Like, if you try to eat that fresh, it, it will kill your palate. I was going to say, it I thought terrible. I was going to break a tooth trying to bite through it. Yeah. Yep. yeah, it's almost like a powder, though, like right when you bite into it. Mm-hmm. It's a really good flavor. Yeah, the Russian name is Varanyai, and they do it with a lot of different things. You what know, am like I tasting, though? Because I don't feel like I'm tasting any of the nut. You're tasting some of the vanilla plant. I put one tiny sprig in there, and it's very powerful. I make homemade vanilla extract, and I haven't bought vanilla extract in years now. It's super powerful. That's really wow. good. Yeah. yeah, isn't that fun? And just like to eat the shell of the nut before yeah. the nut yeah. is it? It's like, ah, oh, it's so What cool. nutritional value is there? I don't know. Fiber. <laughs> it's got to it be something good. good. Okay, now take, fiber, take a little Travis. piece of bread and <laughs> dip, it, dip it into that. My syrups are combining on the plate. Dip it into that. This is a molasses made from the nuts mixed with sugar, and their natural water comes out, starts to lactoferment, and I call it black walnut molasses. And so, you could just have like a little, yeah, just like a little bit. So this has to age. The tannins have to age. I make a liqueur called Nocino too. It's Italian. The French make a version called Walnut Wine or Vendemois. Then in Spain, they have one called Ratafia that includes black walnuts with a bunch of other aromatics, liqueurs you can make with them. But this one, it's, you have to have the tannins aged out. It's got a molasses note, right? So for somebody listening who's having severe FOMO right now of us getting to enjoy all this, mm-hmm. Can people, other than finding your recipes and making things themselves, I know you mentioned you have an event. Are there other ways that people can get to be so lucky as us as trying some of your delicious creation? Uh, I do a few events each year. It's and so okay. So that is the syrup made from balsam fir cones. Slow down, Natalie. Wasn't that's, ready. that's the that's it's the Mongolia. That's the pine cone syrup, but it's made from balsam fir cones. So okay. the cones, the pine cones, have to be harvested at the green stage. What? And then they what mix the this? sugar, and then it ferments. Yeah, it's made from balsam fir. It was my friend, balsam fir cones are really hard to get because my friend was chopping the trees down. It was the only way I was going to be able to get them because they're right at the top they, the, on those. On red pine, like if you go to a, a place around here, a park around here, red pine is going to be everywhere. Those are mm-hmm. the easiest to harvest. Uh, the pines are all edible. 
and you don't eat the cones. You just eat the fermented syrup that comes out of it. I think for me, like one of my biggest takeaways with, first of all, finding your website in this conversation today is just like how much is out there that we can eat and how creative you can be with it. Because it's like, yeah, we many of us know kind of the basics, the basic things that you can forage for and how to, how, you know, what you can do with them. But I think if people want to spend time and, and get into this, that you're really not limited. Okay, so the next thing yeah. is <laughs> that, I say the like, best. By the way, that last one, the pine cone flavor was mm-hmm. really good. I like, yeah. enjoyed that. Came that. Out really, yeah. really, and so strong. and no, what I started that. to see after I did that, traditionally they make it with this uh, mugo pine, is an Italian pine in the Dolomite Alps, and chefs will pay like it's like I'm, I'm forgetting for the price, here. but it's a lot. It's they they buy we put it on the plates with an eyedropper. Really, you can make it for free at home. Like it's, it is prohibitively expensive, but then I started to see, Oh, Hey, this other cone, wait, that's a jack pine cone. What if I make it with a jack pine? Tastes completely different. And each genus has certain aromas and flavors that are specific to it. Spruce cones all have a citrusy taste. Pine and the pinus, they all have like a strong resiny taste. The firs are different. Cedars are completely different and almost like a spruce cross to the pine. Every single one is different, and then you have different flavors within, like, this, to the species by species. It's a total rabbit hole, and it's wow. fascinating. It's really cool. Uh, these are probably my favorites because this, the harvesting window for this is one day, maybe two, from my experience. So this is a, these are a traditional Chinese candy made from the pawn of red pine trees. The, the the what of red pine trees? The pawn. So the male cones. You have female, oh. yeah, yeah, the male so we're cones. we're eating pollen, so your allergies are going to go crazy right now. Or it's going to help my allergies. Oh. It mix them, and you mix it with honey, and they eat okay. it with chopsticks and tea. Does the honey keep it yeah, together so the, then? The te- yeah, so the texture is uh, granular but not unpleasant, and the pollen has a very specific flavor. It's like yeast. In old uh, accounts, they would call it yeasty. In the, in the Middle East, they make something called kiryat. It's like a huge candy cone out of pawn that they steam and then they chip chunks off. It's got a biscuity quality, yeasty yeah. quality to it. I would, exp- I I would describe it. I was going to say a biscuity sort of like thing came out right away. I would describe it to somebody listening as kind of like candy corn in shape, mm-hmm. but yet yellow. In... Should I not have eaten the whole thing? No, you eat the whole thing. I, I popped the whole thing in. Yeah, it's, it's really it's good too, and it's a flavor that kind of coats your whole, or like maybe it's the texture, but it kind of coats your whole mouth with yeah. that flavor. Really, wow. so when you get the tree, when you get a tree at the peak pollen production, I'll have to bring a mask. Like it could be hazardous. There's so much mm-hmm. pollen coming off. How like, are you? How do you collect enough to make that? I have a video online that explains the process. So you take a bag. And you take the like the little branch of the tree, mm-hmm. and I'll take a Ziploc bag, and you put the male cone into the bag, and you shake it, and then the pollen comes off. And then you take it home, and you sift, and you sift the pollen. And then I put it in the freezer, and it will keep basically indefinitely. Unbelievable. Yeah, people take it as like a nutritional supplement. Uh, it's, I think it has testosterone in it, but if they buy it online... The Chinese stuff is all garbage, and I I tried some because I ran out. I was ma- the first time I was making these, I ran out of pawn. I was like, shoot, I need to make get make sure my proportions are correct. I'm just gonna get. I'm gonna or- try to order some and see if I can, you know, make sure that it's the perfect texture. And it was so bitter and had a light green tinge. Was happening hmm. somehow in the industrial process. They're getting needles mixed in either to cut it or for whatever reason. 
and it's just bitter. And people so do the bitter. like kind of the reverse of this, or I do. You know, you can buy honey now even at every grocery store that has pollen in it. A lot of people like that for allergies. Actually, it's like microdosing to help. So it's kind of the reverse. But eating pollen isn't necessarily a totally unusual thing. But this is definitely the most most real way to do it. I think. And the fun. When, can, yeah. So when you buy it, what what is a? You don't buy it. Don't ever buy it. Don't buy it. Do, yeah. It. This you will never have a taste like this. None of the stuff that I've purchased tasted good like this. Okay, so if um, don't do it, but if you were to buy it, how much is something like uh, is that a one ounce little nugget there? How much would something like that cost? I don't. I don't even know. Uh, but it's learning how to do it yourself is like this. Is like a. F- weird command of nature i never thought i can harvest a gallon of pollen like success with pollen is measured in like the tablespoon right sure yeah that's probably each one of those i just say probably a tablespoon roughly Uh, that one bite half probably like a a teaspoon it kind of inflates a little bit when you put the when you mix it with the honey but it's difficult and timing it's a perfect example of timing because if there's a wind gust or a rainstorm all gone (laughs) all gone interesting well, this was all incredible. Thank you for bringing this, well, the samples. I, I just have one more question. There was one thing that you said you missed talking about because we went into the food. You said you didn't get to talk about one thing, and now I don't remember. Oh, Sochan. Sochan, yeah, Sochan. We'll wrap up with Sochan just because it seemed like something. Well, we're not wrapping up for a long I mean, time, right? I have a million more questions here. <laughs> yeah, Sochan is a great plant. I mean, I'll pick nettles. First thing I'll pick is Dame's Rocket, actually, and there's a lot of that around the Twin Cities. Dame's Rocket is excellent, kind of like sweet arugula. It's like arugula if they put sugar in it. Very, very good. Very invasive. Uh, It's in the mustard family. That's all around the Twin Cities. Nettles, obviously, most people know nettles. Those are fantastic. I will eat. I'll probably eat the... Between Sochan and nettles, they'll probably make up the majority of the greens that I'll eat. Uh, But Sochan is is a really, really great one, and... You can get multiple harvests of the plant throughout the year, like as many as four. It makes basil leaves after the, after the it turns cool, but you get like the shoots in the spring. Then you get larger ones, and the plant, uh, the flavor gets stronger as the plant grows. It's a traditional Cherokee green, and it's usually cooked with some kind of fat, uh, like pork fat. So bacon, it loves bacon. I love bacon. <laughs> Natalie often won't pick something near a road here in the metro because she's concerned that it might not be clean or, you know, there's yeah. pollution or chemicals that yeah. may have somehow. And I think it, you know, it's sometimes it's out of an abundance of caution. I know it depends on if it's, you know, how close it is to a road. Is it like actually like growing up and out like a tree or did it literally just get you know, salt and car residue sprayed on it yesterday. So, and I know there's a lot of mixed information out there about that too. How do you feel about that? So this depends on the road. Is this mm-hmm. an old country road? Yes. Then I'll be picking asparagus and I whatever. I was going to ask you if you pick wild asparagus because yeah. yeah. there's telltales there. Is is this a is this yeah, in we're the talking Twin like Cities I live proper? In the, like I live yeah, yeah in no, the Twin Cities. No, then yeah. I'm not picking that at all. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I old feel co- old country roads with no with little to no traffic or just mm-hmm. a little yeah. bit. That's fine. And I'm not going to yeah. be picking stuff that's like directly next to the road. Um, you, I'm going to be in wild places, you know. I think I, we, we do need to mention, obviously, that anytime you're foraging, just like if you're hunting, you have to be aware of where you're hunting or foraging, and you can't do it on private property. You need permission to do it on private property. So make sure that there are 
places that you can and cannot take things from our uh, public properties as well. There are certain parks that there are signs at the access. Do not remove anything. Do not leave the trail. Um, so there are places that you can and cannot hunt. Um, Alan, I know Brandon's trying to cut us off here. We're going for hours, Brandon. But what is your um, most underrated wild growing plant that you like to hunt that nobody else goes after or few people even know about? Uh, Gallium triflorum, the, the plant that I called wild vanilla that I put in with the, with the black walnuts. I have it's no a, idea what yeah, that is. Yeah, it's a cleaver. So do you know what a cleaver is? I think I have the wrong image No, the, a cle- it's a type of plant. There's a whole bunch of them. They'll stick to you. There's a couple. Oh, like uh, a, is a burr a cleaver? Okay, we can move on. Yeah. <laughs> you stumped it's, them. It's gallium triflorum. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I'll show you a picture. You, you'll see. It's They're like long, little spindly, mm. spindly, long plants. Bed straw. It's a bed straw. You know, bed straws. I think I can picture. It. There's a lot that grows out there. Yeah, there's a bunch of yeah. there's a bunch of different bed straws, uh, but this one is it has a compound in it that is the same compound they used to flavor Mexican vanilla extract with, just coumarin, and you put it into alcohol and it makes a wild vanilla extract, like that you can use one to one as a substitute, and it just makes like drinks. All kinds of things, savory applications. It's fantastic. One of my one of the most potent herbs, wild or cultivated, I've ever cooked with. Interesting. Do people reach out to you daily to yes. ask you? So I feel like we've covered a lot here, and there's a lot more that I still want to ask you about. Um, but ultimately, people can learn about everything you shared with us. They can see the videos you're talking about. Where do they go to follow you? I'm usually on Instagram. That's at Forager Chef. My website, where you just go and click on the search bar, type in what you want, or or use the website tools. That's ForagerChef.com. Uh, my show on Apple TV and TasteMade is Field Forest Feast. And then, if you want to see me survive for the better part of a week without food, water, shelter, while foraging in the wilderness for an Iron Chef style competition at the end in BC, uh, that's on Hulu, and that's called Chefs vs. Wild. I wanted to get into all of that stuff. I, know. I feel like we need to end the conversation, yeah. but we didn't even touch on any of those shows so that much you've done. I, I know. I tried to pack in as much yes. as I could. You, yeah. The, I, hope, the, I hope it doesn't sound like a scatterbrained job. conversation. No, I apologize. Great. We got yeah. on the morels for way too long. We did a lot of morels. Dang it. <laughs> Why yeah, does that happen all That's, the time? People are excited about it. <laughs> yeah. We're all excited. All right. It's all right. All right. We didn't I think even we're talk about false morels. Yeah. If it's... If it's you want hollow, to throw out the information yeah, about false morels, okay, please give do, people since, information since we, that matters. Yeah. Okay, so you have a number of relatives of morels. We have uh, Marcellus semilibera and Punctipes. Those are the half-free morels. Those are a true morel because they're Marcella, right? Yep. Then we got verbos. You call it Mar- I called it Marcella, but it's Marcella. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Latin is understandardized. The way to pronounce a Latin name is with confidence. <laughs> this is the, that, is the, that is the correct way. Sure. That's the correct way. Verpa behemica, also a quote-unquote false morel. Those are not a true morel, but they are a traditional food. And those are sold commercially, and they could be shipped from Europe. They could be shipped here to Europe. Uh, very much liked in Europe. 
they have a higher chance of giving people gastrointestinal distress because of individual sensitivities. Then, you know, before you have the morels, well, the early, some people call them early morels, and then you got the, the gyrometra. And we, we know a lot more about them than we did before. The one thing that I think it's really important for people to know about false morels is that they're a traditional food. And they're not something to be scared of. They're, you don't have to eat them. You know, there's no, if you're not experienced or they're an advanced level mushroom, there's no reason that you have to eat them. You but eat, they, do but, you eat them? Yes, I do on occasion. I have a couple jars of Jeremy Chikorfii at my place and Caroliniana. Well, so the, uh, in Finland, they are essentially the national mushroom. I was hunting chanterelles in the Finland. The false morels. Gyrometra esculenta, the most dangerous species of the gyrometra with the highest concentration of monomethahydrazine is... How do you get around that? Like how? It's denatured in a number of ways. Dehydration and then cooking and probably discarding the water if they want to cook them fresh. They're just going to boil them and uh, probably with the window open, you'll be able to smell the aroma of rocket fuel in the air. Really? Yeah, so you want a ventilated area. I did it with a mask the first time I did it. I was Is terrified. the juice worth a squeeze on it for you, for an expert? They taste like morels that you boiled and then sautéed. For most people, they're going to be a novelty. What, but it touches on one of my other passions, which is traditional foodways. And, you know, a lot of these things that I work with, they are not, we don't have a tradition of consuming them in the United States. So I need to look to other cultures. I'm not reading, you know, many recipe books. Now I read a lot of ethnobotanical texts, you know, scientific studies funded by the EU looking at traditional foodways with huge lists of different plants. You know, uh, in my book, I write about a dish that could be made with 60 different individual plants in Northern Italy. We're not going to find stuff like that in the United States. So looking at traditions around the world helps us understand things that are growing outside our door. Just so happens that Scandinavia has, you know, a similar terrain to what we have, especially in the North. And yeah, in Finland, they're essentially the national mushroom and it would not be uncommon to go to a restaurant and get a very nice horse steak with them. Yeah, they're traditional food. Mind blown. Right you, now. yeah. <laughs> so you've opened up a million more questions. I they're know. All they're all, they're fascinating just like, conversation. They also cause the majority of poisonings in North America. Yeah. In mushrooms. You, what would be fatal to eat? Mushrooms or a serving of gyrometra that would somehow kill you? I don't know. I I guess I feel like your your knowledge is worldwide. You know, and I'm so base here in the midwest but i feel like there's got to be something fatal that if you ate it well um, like you're you're uh the death caps they're they're lethal toxic mushrooms here in minnesota they love oak trees they're all over growing the lawn are they those could, the ones that could, pop up in the in people's lawns well there's a ton of different ones the, yeah, most likely true. in the yard it's going to be yeah. chlor either chlorophyllum or codes, the green sickener um or it's going to be some sort of inky cap that I wish could probably pop. be edible yeah. but if you've had alcohol a few days before or a few days after you're probably going to get violently ill and the I same thing and the same thing happens with some species of morel the morel in northern minnesota some pe some people i'd say maybe like 15% of the people i've seen if they have alcohol after they're cooked and they eat them then they will have intense vomiting, GI distress, and then they'll be fine, and they can go back to drinking as long as they don't eat another mushroom. It's fascinating. Yeah. Okay, I individual have, sensitivities vary. I have one more question. Have you, when's the last time, or how often are you out and you are stumped by a mushroom or a green? You're like, I don't know what this is. All the time. Okay. 
All the time. Okay. I, I'm, I'm not an expert. I, I know you said I was an expert. I do not consider myself an expert at all. Uh, I'm always learning. And I think that's a good way to be. That is a good way to be. I think the bright, well, that's not necessarily true. Chicken in the woods. I mean, you see some of the bright things, you know, like mm-hmm. I've eaten insects and people that eat insects are like, nope, don't eat the bright ones. Those are the ones that are terrible or you could get sick from. If it looks, if it looks natural, meaning like greens, browns, camouflage colors, those are the things that you want to go for. But It's always good no matter the outdoor activity to approach it with a certain level of humility. I wish they had a little, you know, like in the story where there's a little sign that next to it that says, I <laughs> yeah. am a, <laughs> so then you knew what you know, Be careful what you wish for. They might no, someday. I don't actually <laughs> wish that at all. I enjoy the hunt. Yeah. I love the hunt. Yeah. I'm fascinated by all this, obviously, which is why I, I want to keep yeah. this conversation rolling. But Natalie, I suppose we have to do the... The sad thing and end this talk. Right I suppose now. we do. Yeah. Well, Chef Allen, thank you so much. Just fascinating. I know a lot of people, myself included, are going to be looking up your recipes and all your information, and we hope you keep doing what you're doing so that we can all ride your coattails and enjoy all they share with us. Oh, I forgot to have you taste the soy sauce I make out of oh. fermented ramp juice. Okay. Should we? We're going to end on yeah, that. We'll, we'll end We're going to end on that. End on okay. that. Take, take right. it just like a little That's bit. A so I put okay. ramps through the juicer. I have to wear a mask and goggles. What? What is this again? I put ramp leaves through a juicer. I mix them with koji rice. I lacto-ferment it for a week, and then I cook it at 145 Fahrenheit for about 30 days. Whoa. It's a vegan Whoa. soy sauce made Whoa. from pure ramp That's juice. That's delicious. Ramp juice. Not the leaves. Wow. The juice. It's a sweeter soy sauce, that, I yeah. feel like. Yeah. So I put- uh, It's more complex. You add it to vegetable broth and makes just a simple Ooh. soup. Yum. Yeah, and little dipping sauces. It's fantastic. Outstanding. That's gonna be. You know, to up show there you like the possibility. That's really good. Yeah, that's, that's, really, that's really, really good. That's, yeah. Yeah. We're gonna have Alan on every episode now. <laughs> <laughs> we are changing the podcast. Yes. It's gonna be the the taste test podcast. All right. Well, thanks again, everyone back home. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Thanks for having me. <laughs>